Good morning. This crowd, I think that there are a number here that uh, probably remember a little book by the title of How Shall We Then Live by Schaefer, Francis Schaefer. He raised the question not of how we should live as to our faith directly nor was he raising the question of how should we live regarding our devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, but how should we live in the public arena? That's the question. Now, perhaps he was a little before his time in the sense of its application in the world, but today we are seeing that very question being raised for us in a very public way, in a public manner. Things like a little cupcake baker that is faced with a $100,000 fine because of their stand for conscience, faith, or the government clerk of a county that decides that she could not, from a moral and conscious position, deal with the requirements of government, the new law regarding homosexuals. Now, you may argue the points of whether they are correct in what they the philosophy that they hold to, whether they should do what they've done in a public arena, but that's really the question, isn't it? We're going to be faced with that more and more. How do we deal with that? Is there anything in the word of God that gives us a standard, a position, a set of principles from which we can deal with these issues. It's wonderful to come here and to have fellowship with brothers and sisters of like mind, isn't it? It's good to go home and there take out the word of God and uh, reaffirm your faith. Have a time of a devotion before the Lord. Think of the wonders of the one who is the eternal God and yet our Savior. But it's something completely different, isn't it? To go out of this building, out into the world, and there have to deal with the issues of the moral issues, the issues that pertain to my life as a believer in a hostile environment. Do I simply just take off the cloak of Christianity, my beliefs, and hang them on a nail before I leave the house? Or is it something that I take and live 24 hours a day? Well, these folks that are in the news, of course, suggest, at least from their perspective, that they're willing to live that life 24 hours a day. And so should we. As I said, I'm 
not condoning one way or the other their response to the requirements of law and the government. I'll leave that decision to you after we look at the scriptures. 26 centuries ago, 2,600 years ago or so, there was a young boy, a young man, between 15 and perhaps at the at the, the eldest number that's given for us regarding his age, 20, between 15 and 20, that was brought into an environment that was utterly foreign to him, a worldly environment where he had to deal with the issues that we are bringing up today, the issue of living a life of public testimony in a hostile environment. That young man was called Daniel. His name was Daniel. Turn with me to the book of Daniel, please. I think we require just a little bit of background before we read through a portion of Daniel and then make a few comments. You remember, of course, that the establishment of, uh, of the throne in Israel was with David. There was a king, King Saul, before that, but of course he was set aside. And the true lineage, the royal lineage, was in David. After David, there followed, of course, his son Solomon. And after Solomon, there we find that that's the end of the United Kingdom. His son Rehoboam comes into power, and of course, through his uh, mismanagement, the, the nation breaks down into two camps. The northern set that were uh, of uh, uh, tribes, the ten tribes, which, were, which are called Israel, were following after Jeroboam rather than Rehoboam, a false royal line with a false priesthood, with even false prophets. Only Judah and Benjamin followed um, Rehoboam. And the true lineage of David is through Judah. And so we have these split camps, this separated kingdom. This northern kingdom came under trial from God by the hand of the Assyrians in 722 BC. And they were taken into captivity because of their idolatry. The southern kingdom continued on Judah continued on until about 606 B.C. when God again judged that two tribes, or those two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the head of Babylon. Why? Well, of course, remember Ezekiel, for instance, speaks to us about 
the issues of the temple. The glory of the Lord departs from the temple and it seems like the glory of God is reluctant to leave Six different steps between chapter 3 and chapter 11 are identified for us. Six different steps of departure in the book of Ezekiel. God was reluctant. But here is the scene. They were priests and their followers hiding in secret, following after idols. There were those priests that were standing by the temple, their back to the temple, worshiping the sun as the glory of God departed. And so the Lord said, your heart is following after idols. Your love is for the gods of the Gentiles. It is by the hand of the Gentiles that I will bring in judgment. And he brings in Nebuchadnezzar as the hand of judgment against the nation Israel. And so in 606, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he takes not only the king of that time, but he also takes a number of young men with him, Daniel being one of them and his three companions that we'll read about. But along with that, of course, we'll see here that he took something else that was of exceeding importance to Daniel, it seems. And it's really the basis of his worldview. Let's read through um, a good percentage of uh, the book of Daniel, beginning with verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehogo, uh, um, Jeho Jeho Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim Jehoiakim, pardon me, king of Judah into his hand with some of the artifacts of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. We're going to look this morning at the basis the basis of a value system that will affect our lives to be witnesses in the world. The basis of a value system. Remember, there is a world system out there that says that is in diametric opposition to the Christian world system. And so we, this morning what we'll do is we'll establish that worldview that we should be living under, the basis of it. And this evening we'll show how it is tested out and lived out before the world. And so here we have Daniel now being in that little group and he's taken along with the, the king, Jehoiakim. And isn't it interesting that Daniel focuses on something that you and I probably wouldn't find of any importance at all. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God. 
some of the articles of the house of God. Why is Daniel bringing this out? Because this, these articles have value to him. Remember that the glory of the Lord departed from the temple. Judgment was brought upon the nation by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. However, the house to the, the temple, the house of God, was representative to uh, Daniel of the absoluteness of God. Remember the, the testimony required of the nation Israel. The Lord established the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple in the land for what? To show that he is central to the nation. The only nation on the face of this earth that has ever been a theocracy is Israel. And so he says that he is central to the nation. Going back to the tabernacle, for instance, the predecessor to the temple, we see there that the tribes of Israel, when they camped, they camped with a tabernacle in the center, and then on all sides, with the doors of their tents, open towards that tabernacle, they viewed the tabernacle as central to their life. But more than that, they were called also to be a testimony to the world, to the Gentiles. And the tabernacle and the um, tent of meeting were identifications of God's presence and their responsibility to present God, to witness God to the world round about them. They failed. That rather than doing that, they chased after the idols of, of the Gentiles. But in Daniel's mind, here is a representation that had absolute value to him. It spoke of God as the absolute standard for him. Nebuchadnezzar also put a value on the, these elements that he brought out from the temple. Look what his position is. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand, into his hand, that's into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. There's value. Here he is. The something's utterly amazing when when uh, Daniel enters into Babylon. Here is a city that is the marvel of the world, 80 foot high walls. You could run four chariots abreast on the top of it. Nearly 100, nearly 1,200 different temples to their gods. All materialistic, naturalistic, idolatry. 
and he's brought here and into his favorite God's treasure house. Notice what it says. It says, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. To the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. The suggestion here is that this is a museum. Although dedicated to his favorite God, it is a building set aside, a huge building set aside as a museum. And there he would have, for instance, the Assyrian section and the Egyptian section, all the areas of conquest. And there he would bring in some of the, some of the things that were from, uh, of course, Israel itself, Judah itself. And so he had value. He put value on this, but not the absolute value that Daniel put on it. Daniel says, this is a symbol of my absolute God behind me, behind it. Nebuchadnezzar says it has relative value. I don't know if any of you have any gold or silver coins. There's some relative value there. It changes every day, doesn't it? You may have an inscription on there that this is a silver dollar. It's worth $21 in silver today. Tomorrow it may be 22 or 19, relative value. There's collector's value. People put pictures on the walls and say, okay, this has value to me. A Picasso or a Miro or Hunterwasser or Boulanger, or whatever it is that you might hang on your walls. They have value. What's the value? Well, it's certainly more than just the, uh, the paint and the canvas. Collective value, but it's relative. To one, it may be a million dollars, to another, 10. To me, 10 cents. And to you, probably, that as well. Relative value. You see, there, are, there is an absolute value, Daniel says, that by which we should live. God is absolute, and everything else is relative. Now, you know, I, I think I have a conscious understanding of what relativism is and what absoluteness, absolutism, absolutism is. But I went to the dictionary, secular dictionary, to find out what the world thought of relativism, whether they had a definition, and absoluteness. Let me read it to you. Relativism. The doctrine that knowledge, truth, and morality exists in relationship to culture, society, or historical context, and are not absolute. The standards change constantly. Homosexuality is a sin. Homosexuality is accepted, but in your own bedroom. Homosexuality is now presented as having 
not only uh, open acceptance, but you are to joy in it with me. Take the standards of abortion or any other issue before us. Relativism, because the standard always changes. The ruler always moves. That's not so for the believer. God is unchanging. Here's what the secularist dictionary says about absoluteness. Existing independently and not in relation to other things, not relative or comparative. Another says this, ultimate reality, God. Not a, from a theological dictionary. Ultimate reality, God. Is God our standard? Daniel says, God is my standard. There is the symbol of the standard to me, that there is a God in heaven, and he is the absolute standard by which I measure my life. We tend to fall oftentimes into relativism. Well, times have changed. We're in modern times. Things have, are different now, are they not? Well, this is 26 centuries ago, and he says no. The time that he's living in is different, but the issues that permeate the events in Babylon are very similar to what we have here. The philosophy is identical. Naturalistic view of existence. So absoluteness is the first point that he's presenting up. Our worldview, what is of value? What is your value system? That's the key. And then he continues on. Um, well, let's just go ahead and uh, drop on down to verse 5. And the king appointed for them daily provision, that's these young men, that uh, are with Daniel, Daniel and these young men that are with him, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he's, the king appointed for them daily provision for the king, uh, of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from, from among those of the sons of Judah and were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names, and he gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, uh, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. If we're called to a value of system that is absolute, we're called to identify with that value system as well. What's in a name? What's being spoken of here? You see, as they were brought in to this environment, this 
heathenistic environment, they did not like the reminder of a God in these four men. Listen to what the names are here. For Daniel, God is my judge, or God is judge. For Hananiah, the Lord chose grace. For Mishael, who is like God? For Azariah, the Lord helps. Now here we have a gospel in four names. God is saying here that he is a God of judgment. God is my judge. There is nothing that we get away with. And the humanity doesn't like to hear that. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have gone our own way. I don't want to hear that I'm going to be judged, that there is a standard, an absolute standard that I'm held to. And I'm going to be accorded judgment based on that. We will stand at the judgment seat of Christ, not being judged as to salvation, but being judged as to our works after salvation. And guess what the standard is going to be? The standard of measure, it's going to be an absolute standard. Here it is. We're given this book to live by this book, and how we live is going to be the measure in heaven according to this book. And so God's mind is declared in this, and it's an absolute a standard that doesn't fluctuate. And so the humanity doesn't like to hear that there is a judge, a God that judges. And so with Daniel, there is that great reminder, God is a judge. But with Hananiah, we have the Lord is grace. Oh, Thank God, I think everyone here, I would hope, is able to say, yes, God is a God of judgment, and he, I deserve that judgment, but it was placed upon the head of my beloved Savior by virtue of God's grace. Grace. Accounting or putting to my account that which I don't deserve. Grace. And if he is a God of judgment and a God of grace, then we can say, who is like God? Who is like God? He is the absolute, who is like him? And appeals to the heart and worship, that which we partook of this morning. And finally, Azariah, the Lord helps. He doesn't leave us alone. He doesn't save us and then drops us off and says, okay, go through the muck of life on your own. He's there, available every moment of every day for us. Identity, what's in a name? And what did the world do? No, we're going to have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Belteshazzar. An appeal now made to the, their idolatrous gods. 
the cover. And that's what the world will do with us too. You identify yourself with Christ, they will do everything that they possibly can to undermine that identification, even to change not the terminology, but the value of that terminology. Christian, what do you hear when you, what do you see when you hear Christian? The Mormon calls himself Christian, and the Seventh-day Adventist, and the Jehovah Witnesses, and those that are in churches that preach a social gospel, they're all Christians. And the world lumps them under that, not those that truly belong to Christ, Christ ones, but the terminology, the word is the same, but the meaning behind it is different. What is in the name? Turn with me to the 11th chapter of Genesis very quickly. Eleventh chapter in Genesis, a familiar, again, a familiar section here for us. We have the close of history to this point. It starts in the first chapter with creation, then the fall of, of man, then, of course, the great events, the Noahic flood, the flood of Noah, and then, of course, Babylon comes in, 11 chapters, 11 chapters. And this is what he says in the 11th chapter. Well, let me just go uh, with verse 1 very quickly. Now, the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they <clears throat> journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake, th bake them thoroughly. They had, had bricks of stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Let us make a name for ourselves. Babylon is associated with the world. Do we want to make a name for ourselves in the world? For on down verse 9, it says this way, that it says this, therefore in its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the earth. Babel, confusion. And yet, how many of us want to make a name for ourselves in the world? It is a, a terrible irony that in speaking to some folks, parents of grown children, I would ask, and it just happened not that long ago, I ask, how is John doing? Oh, he's doing very, very well. He is now an associate in a law firm. But how is he doing in a spiritual sense? 
oh, well, he doesn't go to church, he doesn't go to meetings. There's not much of a spiritual life in the family at all. But you see, the parent, what did they say? Their value system was the value of the world. How is your son doing? How's your child doing? Oh, they are an associated in the a high firm, law firm, or whatever it may be. There they are. There is their name in the world, in Babel. But when it comes to the spiritual matters, what happens? Well, that's a secondary issue to them. Are we making a name for ourselves in Babel? Babylon wants to cover the testimony that we hold before the Lord, our identification with the Lord. And so we have the standard, the absolute standard that is God and God alone. Our identification with that standard, our name. Look at, verse, look at uh, chapter uh, 12 of Genesis as well. Hold your place in Daniel. Chapter 12 of Genesis. In 11 chapters, God gives us the history of humanity at that particular point, great events. And you would think, well, this is important stuff, but not in the sight of God. Because from chapter 12 of Genesis through chapter 15, he doesn't deal with all the events, all the history of humanity, all the great events. He deals with four men, four men alone and the importance that he places on these four men. And he begins with Abraham. Verse 1 of chapter 12, Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and so on and so forth, and curse those who curse, uh, who curse you. I will make your name great. We're in this world. Are we seeking after the things of the world? Are we seeking to make a mark in this world? Are we seeking to develop a name for ourselves in this system? Or are we permitting God to work in our lives and give us a name. Who can name the name or give me the name of the Pharaoh that was in association with Moses? Not a one, but you know the name Moses. And so does the world. A name given by God. This world, what has it? Nothing. And so we have the standard, and we have the identification, but there is more. Verse, going back to verse 5 and the king of uh, chapter 1 of Daniel, and the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and th 
and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before their king. And so it is, here it is, the issue is brought out that they are going now into the royal university for three years and they're going to be preened for the task of service to the king, to Nebuchadnezzar. And one of the requirements is the provision, would be the provision of the king, from the king's table. Now that provision from the king's table was first offered up to idols. Look on verse 5. But Daniel... Uh, verse 8, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank there, therefore. He requested of the chief of the eunuch that he might not defile himself. He says, look, send, give me vegetables, give me water. I don't want the food from the table of the king. We don't have the time, but if you go to the fifth chapter of Daniel there, you'll find another king, the one that follows uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and there you will see that in fact the food is food on the table, is food offered to idols. And so some suggest here that this food, the reason for, for um, <clears throat> Daniel's refusal of eating the food is because it wasn't kosher. Yes, to some degree, that is, of course, absolutely true. But there is no restriction on wine in the law, and yet he also would not partake of the wine. Why? There's a definite association here that he did not want to partake of that which was offered to idols. And so he says, give us something else to eat. And of course, the chief of the eunuchs, he says, uh, you know what? I've got a kind of a liking for my neck. Your appearance is going to be what it should be before the king, and uh, he's going to kind of remove the head from the body for me, and I'd rather keep it where it is. And so Daniel gives him a challenge. Well, look, just... Let's have a few days, 10 days, and then take a look at us. And so he takes them up, the, the, the chief of the eunuchs takes them up uh, on this. And of course, Daniel and his, uh, his cohorts, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and, uh, and um, Azariah, don't eat the food of the table of the king. They take the vegetables and water, and here they are after 10 days, and what does it say? Verse 12, it says, please test your servants. Here's the test. Test your servants, whether my obedience to God will have a positive effect or not. And let's drop on down to verse 14. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them. Look at this word. Tested them ten days, and at the end of ten days their features appeared better and fatter in the flesh. Better, better. Drop on down to verse 20. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the, uh, the king examined them, he found them ten times better 
Now, I'm not saying that to live out the character of the Lord in our lives is going to somehow um, make us uh, ten times better before the world, but will make us better, better. And that's the key here. This is character, character. Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself. Is that our purpose? Romans chapter 12 speaks of that, does it not? I beseech you, brethren, that you present your bodies. Right? Present your... Have we done that? In the original, the suggestion there is that it's a one-time exercise of the soul. It doesn't mean that we can't fail after that. We can and do. But I had a may, I've made a determination that no matter what, I am living by the absolute, my God, And I'm not going to be conformed to this world, but be transformed. In chapter six, in chapter three, and chapter six of First Corinthians, there we're presented as being a temple. In the one case, we're temple individually; our body is the temple of the living God. In the other, we're a temple corporately. I think this was the mind of Daniel here. Daniel says, look, those emblems of the temple are a reminder to us of the absoluteness of God. And now we are going to convey that character. We're going to be living temples in the midst of our society here. Temples. In both those cases, it speaks of the residency of God in us, corporately or individually. But it goes even better. The word that is used there is the word nehas, the very holy of holies. Are we aware of the fact that we are the very holy of holies in which the God of heaven resides here on earth? The standard, absoluteness. We have a God that is absolute. We live by that value system alone. Our identification is with Christ, and our lives ought to be a reminder to the world that we're identified with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. What I am my character. Character is not reputation. Character is what I am when the door is closed and the light is out. What I am before God. It's easy to put on airs and, and have a reputation develop, but is it in fact in line with our character? Character we can't hide anything from God. Character is what we are before a holy God. And are we living out that character? 
the very essence of Christ in our lives. This is foundational. Tonight we're going to take a look at testing and putting into effect, into motion, what we believe foundationally. Putting it into effect in the public arena, public witness. And so here we are. Our value system is absolute. God is the standard. Our identification is with God and God alone. And we look to him to build up our value, our, our name. And we bear forth to the world the very character of the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be so, dear saints. Let us pray. Our Father and beloved God, we thank thee, Father, for the truths that relate to this day, written some 2,600 years ago. Thou art a God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we thank thee for that standard. We thank thee, O gracious Father, that thou hast called us into a life through Christ Jesus, a life that is not only eternal, but has a, a divine imprint on it. Thy hand upon us, and we thank thee for that. And we pray, O oh gracious Father, that we may exhibit true ownership to those round about us. And that we, Father, might indeed bear forth the very essence of the life of Christ to this desperate and needy world. We ask it all in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.